to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, reading verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is God's inspired and infallible word. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isaiah 9, verse 6 is our text today, really the second Part of verse 6 is our text. We'll begin our reading at chapter 9 and verse 1. We'll read through verse 7. Again, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest or rather, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel. For the, for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. We ask, O God, we pray in particular to you, O Word incarnate, 
Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the divine Logos, the one who has made God known to us, the one who came to dwell, who came to tabernacle in the midst of your people in the darkness of this world. We ask, O Father, we ask, O Son, we ask, O Holy Spirit, especially that you would shine your light upon your word as it's preached today, that you'd fill our hearts with great joy, that you would enlighten our hearts with great wisdom, and that you would grant us the hope of Messiah, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In order to fully comprehend Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 9 and verses 1 through 7, it's important that we understand Israel's and Judah's circumstances at the time of this prophecy. Remember, uh, God's people are a divided kingdom, uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, uh, Isaiah's well-known vision of chapter 6 and verse 1, when he saw the Lord sitting on a throne Lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple took place in the year of Isaiah's death. Isaiah, uh, king of Judah, which ended a 52-year reign of peace and prosperity in the southern kingdom. But what followed was a period of great turmoil and unrest both for Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel uh, saw war as uh, the Aramaeans to the north of them overtook them uh, in the northern kingdom. Isaiah chapter 8 prophesies uh, the fall of Damascus. Damascus was the capital city of Aram and Samaria, the capital city of Israel when Uh, The Assyrian uh, Assyrian king came and uh, overtook them and and exiled populations from Galilee and Gilead to Assyria, which put the Assyrians on Judah's doorstep. There was nothing in between to stop the Assyrian king from coming and besieging Jerusalem as well. During this period... uh, following that 52-year reign of prosperity and peace under Isaiah, his grandson Ahaz was quite wicked. We've just dealt with us. The context really is the context of 2 Kings that we've been in these last last weeks. And uh, Isaiah's grandson Ahaz was a a wicked king. He brought uh, the sins of Israel, the sins of Jeroboam, the king who introduced idolatry uh, into uh, the northern kingdom. He brought those sins of 
uh, of uh, that wicked king to the sins of Israel. And so idolatry is, is prevailing both in Israel and uh, in Judah. Here in chapter 9 and verse 1, uh, we read of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were the first regions, uh, the first uh, in the region of Galilee to suffer from uh, the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom. And yet the predominant theme of this prophecy in verses 1 through 7 here in Isaiah chapter 9 is joy. It's joy and uh, light and hope uh, that the prophet speaks to this, uh, these troubled kingdoms in the north and in the south, God's people. And though he treated these regions of Naphtali and Zebulun with contempt, verse 1 says, the time was coming when he would cause his glory to shine on Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember that our Lord Jesus Christ was from the land of Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. And from there, uh, the Lord would begin to shine his light, he says. In verse 2, the prophet refers to a great light that shines on those who walk in darkness and dwell in the shadow of death. The light is like the rising of the sun. In verse 3, the prophet speaks of joy, uh, which he compares to the joy of the harvest, it's also likened to the joy of victory when uh, warriors dis- divide the spoil after battle. How does this light and joy and hope arise? The answer is found in the first clause of Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. He's a child which designates his humanity and a son which designates his divinity. The child born to us is identified with our human nature so that he would advance our nature, perform obedience to the law in our nature so that in our nature his obedience would be accepted by God and that he might make intercession for us in our nature, our confessional documents instruct us in this way. But the prophecy gives us further reason to believe that this was much more than a human child because Isaiah tells us that the government will rest on his shoulders. Verse 6, in his rule would be without end, verse 7. The hope of a just and righteous king is what Israel needed. And so God promises them that a governor is coming, a Messiah is coming. And as he executes his office as king, 
that he would do so in justice and righteousness in a way that no king of Israel ever had or ever could. Dear Christians, it's this child born to us, this son given to us, Jesus, the Messiah, who brings all light and joy and hope to the soul. It's Christ who gives light to the soul in the shadow of death. It's Christ who gives joy like harvest joy and the light of hope to the troubled heart. May God give us light and joy and hope as we consider the words of this prophecy together today. We'll be focusing our attention on the five aspects of Messiah's name here in verse 6. Notice the precision of Isaiah's prophecy. He doesn't say names when he alludes to the Messiah here, but he says that his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's a singular, multifaceted name. Just as the singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in which you have been baptized, if you have received that sacrifice, is a singular name of the Holy Trinity. This singular name of Messiah is a revelation of his character. Christ's multifaceted name gives light and hope and joy to the believing soul. We're going to look at these five facets. We're going to look at this multifaceted name this morning. As we do so, we'll observe first, Messiah performs divine wonders. Second, Messiah possesses divine wisdom. Third, Messiah exercises divine power. Fourth, Messiah is eternally divine. And fifth, Messiah conveys divine peace. So in the first place, Messiah performs divine wonders. His name will be called Wonderful. I'm aware that uh, like the translation, the New American Standard, from which I read and preach, uh, your English versions, some of your English versions have wonderful counselor. There's no comma between wonderful and counselor. And I've read the arguments, the scholarly arguments, uh, uh, that uh, argue that this should be one term, that, that what... Uh, the prophecy to, uh, that Isaiah is speaking here from uh, Jehovah should read Wonderful Counselor, but I'm not convinced. In fact, I think 
this first term, wonderful, a reason it's, I won't bother you with the, the structural reasons that uh, in the Hebrew that scholars think that this is one term, but this first term is in the singular, I believe so, because it's, it's, it shines the light on the rest of these names, uh, or the rest of these facets of the one name of, of the Messiah. His name is Wonderful. If, you, if we study the way this word is used in uh, the scriptures, this is a word uh, that focuses on a particular aspect of Messiah, and it's his working of wonders. Messiah is one who works wonders. And it seems that we've lost the, the wonder of the word wonderful in, in the English language. In, in English, it has two basic senses. Uh, in the first place, it's, we, we use it to, to refer to something that's unusually good. It's the way we typically use it. How, how was your vacation? Someone asks. Well, you might reply, it was wonderful. It was, it was unusually good. Or to the host of a meal, uh, you say that, that, that dish you served was wonderful. But then the word also has the sense of something marvelous or something astonishing. And I think that's the sense that we've lost in our language. Uh, the Hebrew word, Rather, uh, whether rather in the uh, noun or the adjective or the verbal form carries this second sense. It's used to describe something that's extraordinary. It's also used to describe something that's hard to understand. Christ's nature is wonderful in both senses of the Hebrew word. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is both extraordinary and hard to understand. How is it that Jesus could forego his position, his rights and riches, those that he possessed eternally as the most high Son of God, taking on our humanity coming as a servant to suffer and die for the sins of his elect people. How can two natures, human and divine, coexist in the one person of Jesus Christ? Someone has said that the incarnation of the Son of God is the greatest mystery of the Christian religion. And that's saying a lot. Because Scripture sets forth another great mystery in the doctrine of the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. But within the mystery of the Trinity, we have an additional mystery, the incarnation 
of the Son of God. The noun that's translated wonderful in verse 6 appears many times in the Old Testament describing God's wondrous works. For example, in the song of triumph that the Israelites sang after God delivered them from the Egyptians, the song of Moses, Exodus 15, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? That's the word that appears here in Isaiah chapter 9. In verse 6 in our text, Messiah is the wonder worker. Sometimes it's translated miracle in uh, our English translations. The verbal form appears 40 times in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 92, I will tell of all your wonders, the psalmist said. I will tell of all of Jehovah's wonders. The Messiah is wonderful because he is a wonder worker. Micah's prophecy of Messiah in chapter 5 and verse 2 of that book tells us of Messiah's goings forth to do such wonders He says that they're from long ago, from ancient days. Most often, uh, when Messiah went forth in ancient days to do wonders, it was in the form of the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah. The pre-incarnate Christ appeared as the angel of the Lord to Samson's Parents in the era of the judges, Manoah and his barren wife, promising them a son. And when Manoah asked his name, when, so that when the promise came to pass, they could give honor to the one who fulfilled that promise. Remember what the angel of the Lord said. He said, why do you ask my name? since it is wonderful. And then, the text tells us, he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on to authenticate the word of promise that he had spoken to them. The one who often appeared as the angel of the Lord doing wondrous works. The angel of the name, as Exodus 20, uh, 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 rather, Numbers 20 calls him, uh, the angel of Jehovah, the, uh, the one who delivered Israel out of Egypt, has come in the flesh, and as such, he was a wonder worker during the time of his ministry both in the land of Galilee and in the land of Judah. He turned water into fine wine at Cana. He rebuked the sea and the wind, saying, Hush and be still. And the the wind listened and calmed down. And the sea became calm. 
He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He arose from the dead. And he accomplished redemption for his people. Christ's miracles authenticated his divinity. Messiah's name is wonderful. And every Christian confesses this truth. He's shown himself to be wonderful to you. And given the opportunity, every believer here would rise up and say, yes, this Messiah, Christ, the wonder worker, has been wonderful to me. Yes, I have found Jesus, my Messiah, to be wonderful. I've come to understand his extraordinary character, even though it's even though I can't fully comprehend it, even though I can't fathom the infinite and eternal Son of God becoming man, I've nevertheless experienced his wonder-working power in the full provision that he makes for sinners. Thank God that he has given us a Savior a wonder-working Savior who is indeed wonderful. Thank God that he has made full provision for our salvation, full provision for our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus brings great light and joy and hope to his people, because his name is wonderful. Secondly, Messiah possesses divine wisdom. His name will be called Counselor. Now, a counselor is a guide, a mentor, a teacher. He's one who advises. He gives direction with regard to a particular matter or matters. The characteristic most commonly associated with counseling is wisdom. Jesus is the source of all wisdom. As he's revealed in the scriptures, he is the fountain of wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God and became to us wisdom from God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And here in Isaiah's prophecy, God is making a promise to his people that Jesus, the Messiah, would wisely advise them, that he would be a wise counselor to them. The world was in desperate need of counsel then. Kings, the kings of Israel and Judah, had counselors. They sought wisdom from these counselors. They needed wisdom. The world today is in need of great wisdom, and God has provided that counsel in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mankind was ruined by a previous 
counselor who said to Adam and Eve, Has God really said you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And you surely shall not die if you do, but you will be like God. Listening to that counsel brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. But God has provided a, a counselor, one who would bring us out of the estate of sin and misery and into the estate of salvation by that Redeemer who is the Messiah, who is the child born to us, who is the Son given to us. And in, that, in Messiah's prophetic office, he counsels us with regard to our salvation. He says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And by that, Jesus is making clear the truth that there is no other God but the Father, and that no one is able to come to that God except through faith in the one whom he has sent, this one whom he has called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God, the one who is the Prince of Peace alone. And through this Counselor alone, through his divine counsel, you, uh, you may come to God. You may be enlightened in your in your intellect, in your mind, and in your soul of uh, the knowledge that you need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And God, uh, even now, is calling those who are apart from Christ to listen to the call and to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. His name is Wonderful. His name is Counselor. Thirdly, Isaiah tells us Messiah exercises divine power. His name shall be called Mighty God. Due to modern hymnody, believers have some familiarity with the Hebrew names of God, such as El Shaddai which is translated God Almighty in our English translations. Here in Isaiah 9-6, it's El Gabor, Mighty God. The prefix El is attached to uh, other names of God as well. For example, uh, El Yon, God Most High. Elohim is the plural name of God first appearing in Genesis chapter 1. He's the powerful God who created uh, all things, created the universe. The child born to us, the son given to us, is called by the name El Gabor, mighty God, because he's God himself. I once had a debate with a, a Jehovah's Witness about Christ's divinity. You uh, perhaps will know that the Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus was divine, that he was God. And this 
Uh, this woman, this Jehovah's Witness with, which, with whom I was speaking, uh, said that she believed that salvation was through faith in Jesus Christ, although she believed that Jesus wasn't God. He was merely a human, a great prophet, yes, God, no. I said to this woman, your Jesus cannot save you. Your Jesus does not have the power to save you. A Jesus who isn't God can't save you. A Jesus who is not El Gabor, who isn't all-powerful, can't keep our nature from sinking under God's wrath. God's people need one who is strong, who is mighty. And that's what Gabor means, mighty one. He's the one who has divine strength. We would be lost. We would perish eternally if it weren't for the strength of this mighty Savior. We need one who can go forth for us as a king, conquering the governor of the nations, the governor of the church, the governor of our families, our personal governor who can help us as we wage war against sin. This is our Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is wonderful, counselor, mighty God. Isaiah's prophecy discloses a fourth facet of Christ's character in this multifaceted name. Messiah is eternally divine. His name will be called Eternal Father. Now, why is he called Eternal Father? Is Messiah both the Father and the Son? Well, that would certainly add to his incomprehensibility, wouldn't it? It would be a very difficult thing to understand if Jesus were both the person of the Father and the person of the Son in the divine trinity. Why does the prophecy ascribe this name, Eternal Father, to Messiah? Well, it's important for us to observe that Isaiah doesn't say that Jesus is the Father. He says he will be called, his name will be called Eternal Father. Just as he's called Wonderful, just as he's called Counselor, Mighty God, he will be called Eternal Father. And so in, by using this name, Eternal Father, Isaiah isn't in any way describing the relationship of the persons of the Trinity. If the Holy, in the Holy Trinity, the Son is not the person of the Father. The Father is not the person of the Son. There's no confusion between these persons in uh, the Godhead. It's further important to us to understand that uh, this expression, Eternal Father, here in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9.6 is a Hebrew idiom that means that Messiah is the father of eternity. He has the character of absolute eternality. And Isaiah goes on to tell us of his eternal character here in verse 7, where he says that there will be no end to the increase of his government. Not only is the government on his shoulders, but his divine 
governance is to all eternity. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So once again, the the emphasis here in Isaiah's prophecy is on Messiah's divinity, and in particular on his eternality, his eternal godhood. Because Messiah is God, God's attributes, the, the attributes of the Holy Trinity, and his worship and his works are attributed to him, and so Jesus is called the Father of eternity because he is the eternal creator. He's called the Father of Eternity because he's the sustainer of life. He's the one who providentially upholds all things by the word of his power uh, in an everlasting way, as the writer of Hebrews explains to us in the first chapter of that letter. His throne is an everlasting throne. So the writer there in Hebrews says, Your throne, O God, is forever, is forever. Uh, is forever and ever, and, and also says of, that Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. We have a Messiah who is the same from all eternity. What kind of Messiah would Jesus be if he changed from day to day like we do? What kind of a Messiah would our Lord be if, if he were as fickle-minded as we are, changing our minds from one moment to the next. God gives us light and joy and hope in that we have this, in this one who is called the father of eternity, stability given in the changing sands of the world in which we live. Fifthly and lastly, Messiah conveys divine peace. His name will be called the Prince of Peace. By this last facet of the name of Messiah, Isaiah is declaring peace to a people who have seen war, people who are facing the prospect of the Assyrian attack already or the Assyrian attack on their doorstep. And this is consistent with the angelic announcement of Messiah's birth that we read about in Luke chapter 2. Glory to God and on earth peace to men. What does it mean that this child that would be born would bring peace. What does it mean that Christ brings peace? This time of year, we hear a lot about peace and goodwill toward men. It's borrowed, of course, from that angelic proclamation in Luke's gospel, Luke Luke chapter 2. It appears on Uh, Christmas cards that arrive in our mailboxes. It's clear 
that in general, uh, this is understood as a peace upon all, a peace upon all of, of, uh, of mankind, all of humanity. And so it's applied to the cessation of wars among those who are at war. It's often cited as the reason why nations should lay down their arms at this time of the year during the Christmas season, because after all, this is, uh, this is a season of peace. But that understanding fails to recognize that the peace spoken by the angels on that glorious night of Messiah's birth had a more particular object in view. Glory to God and peace among men, the angels said, not on all men, but upon men with whom his favor rests. That said, there is a general or a broad meaning to the peace of light that God would bring upon his people. The general meaning that John Calvin wrote is that all who submit to the dominion of Christ will lead a blessed and quiet life. And hence it follows that without the Prince of Peace is restless, a restlessness and misery. That describes the world's condition, doesn't it? Restlessness and misery. Those who are apart from Christ, those who don't know this prince of peace, live lives of restlessness and misery. They're, they're miserable because they have no real peace, no lasting peace, even if there are times of temporary peace, there's no lasting peace. But the Prince of Peace, of whom Isaiah speaks here, brings peace to his subjects. He brings peace to those who, whom he has conquered, whom he has brought under his dominion as the Prince of Peace. The Apostle therefore proclaims that having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer God's enemies. That's the only way to real peace. And it's the only way that we can ex experience true peace in a general sense in this restless and miserable world in which we live. The only way that we can have peace in the midst of circumstances that bring unrest into our lives is to know the Prince of Peace. When Jesus arose from the dead, he stood in the midst of his disciples in that upper room where they were cowering for fear of the Jews and he spoke peace to them. Peace to you, he said. Peace to those who had abandoned him. Peace to those who were living in fear because their great king had been crucified in a cross and was, had been buried in a tomb. Peace, he said. 
And today, the Prince of Peace stands in our midst through the ministry of the Spirit of Christ. And he speaks peace to you. Peace in the midst of troubling circumstances in your life. Peace in the midst of tribulation and turmoil, the chaos that often goes on in this world. Jesus, the Messiah, is the Prince of Peace. He's made peace with you, and he speaks peace with you today. I certainly haven't done full justice to Messiah's multifaceted name. God has given uh, given us this name of Messiah, this multifaceted name. He's revealed Messiah's character in this way to give us light and joy and hope and to show us just how great a Messiah Jesus is so that we will submit to his divine authority. The only way to experience true peace with God is to experience Christ's reign fully in our lives. That begins by putting faith in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. It continues in the life of faith by continually submitting to Christ. As our faith grows, more and more recognizing the glory of the Messiah that God has given to us. Every form of rebellion against the rule of Messiah's government, a government that will have no end, Isaiah's prophecy says, a throne that will endure forever, leads to unrest. All of our sins lead to ruin in our lives. Our only hope is to abide under the the almighty wings, under the shadow of the almighty wings of this wonderful, wise, almighty, eternal counselor to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. common for us to wish one another a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year this, during this time, during this season. I have no doubt that the wishes that have been expressed uh, to me in this regard and, uh, and the wishes that I have ex- expressed to others in this way are, are sincere. But in order to be truly joyful, In order to be truly happy and at peace, Christians must come to a greater knowledge of this multifaceted name. We must strive with all of our might to know this Messiah. We haven't been called uh, into light and joy and peace and the hope of his kingdom merely to maintain the status quo 
or to limp along in the Christian life. We have been called to, to know deeply uh, and to commune deeply with the one who is called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, so that we might know the true blessedness of his light and joy and peace and hope. Well, let's pray. Our glorious God in heaven, we praise your great and wonderful name. Indeed, you are wonderful. And O Christ, our Messiah, you are wonderful. You are our counselor. You are our mighty God, our eternal Father, our Prince of Peace. And we pray that this coming year, You'd grant us the grace to know you in every facet of your being. Awaken us, O God, out of our stupor. Give us a, cause us to marvel at this extraordinary name that you have given to our Messiah. Enable us to see you as more wonderful, as more glorious, as more beautiful. Enable us to see you as you are, truly, even though we can't see you physically. We ask that you would hear uh, this prayer, O God, as simple as it is, and that you would grant us your divine assistance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.